as you guys know, we've been just going through this epistle, this letter of the Apostle John. We've been going through it. This is week 15. Uh, we've been, it's just been just been just crazy the way that it's sort of lined up with our lives in our church, and it's been, it's been a, a, an adventure uh, to go through this with you guys. And I, I kind of want to just do this to kind of make this, give you guys a, a bit of a framework here. We're in the first letter of John. And the first letter of John, John's letter to his church, it really could be summarized this way. The Apostle John has set out to write a letter that sets the record straight about who Jesus is and what that means for us. Who Jesus is, despite what people are saying, and what that means for John's church and what that also in turn means for our church and for our world and for Christians today. See, in John's day, there was a lot of false teaching that was going around in this church about Jesus. It was teachings about his deity. It was teachings about his humanity. I'll tell you a little bit more about exactly what it was a little bit later in the message. But what was happening was it was undermining the gospel in this church. It was distracting people and it was leading people astray. It's kind of leading them off into a way that they should not go. And in our world today, the thing that I think has made this series so relevant and this letter as we're going through it seems so relevant to us in our worlds and in our lives and in our cultures and the way that it's seemed to ring true in so many of our hearts is I believe that's because it's just like in John's day, our world is filled with a million different things that have sought the place of Christ in his place. Antichristos. There are a million voices out there every day that are telling us what's right and what's wrong, what we should believe in, what we should not believe in, right? It, there's, and it gets kind of confusing, doesn't it? It can be confusing. So I think that it's very important that we kind of go back to the foundation of who Jesus is and what that means for us and what when that actually takes shape in us that can actually do for our world. So we've, throughout this epistle, we've got things like God is light. That's like, that is what God is like. He's like light and in him is no darkness at all. We get Jesus is our advocate in chapter two. He's our parakletos. He's the one who stands by our side. He's the one who pleads our cause before the judge. Uh, in chapter three, we get that we are God's children right now. God is our father. In John 4, we get God is love. And then in today's passage, we get ultimately kind of another description of God, which we'll get to kind of exactly what I believe it is in the end. But ultimately, it really does seem to be painting a picture of who Jesus is. And it's a bit of an odd passage, uh, but we're going to just read it together and then we're going to just sort of dive into it together. So let's open up our Bibles together to 1 John 5, verse 6 through 12. Okay, so this is what this says. It says, This is he who came by water and blood. Okay? Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. You're like, okay, this is very exciting. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is, his this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God 
has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. He gave that to us. Notice that. It doesn't say he's going to someday give that to us. He gave that to us right now. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, Lord, we thank you. Lord, that it's just an awesome, awesome summer it's been so far, Father God. We thank you for this adventure that we've, as we've been studying your passages, your holy scriptures, these ancient words, Father God, from an ancient letter that reigns so incredibly true to our lives today, God. Uh, Father God, I thank you for the testimonies that have come in from it. I thank you for all that you're doing in people's hearts and in people's lives and all that you're doing in our community and in communities around the city, God, and what you're doing in Detroit, God. We just ask a blessing over our city today. We ask a blessing over all the other churches meeting today, all the other uh, families meeting today. Father God, we just pray, Lord, for unity and peace. And Holy Spirit, in this room today, God, as we navigate a very confusing passage, God, I pray, Lord, that... uh, Holy Spirit, first of all, that you would be evident in this place that everything that you would have me to say, I would say, let everything else fall to the ground before it ever comes out of my mouth, God. Let grace be evident and present in this place, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So one thing uh, that you learn in homiletics class, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with what that means, when you when you're, want to be a pastor or a public speaker, homiletics is basically it's the art of the sermon. They call the sermon an art, and it's this word homiletics, the art of the sermon. And one thing that they say about teaching a sermon is they say, well, when you're preparing a sermon, at least, at least the, the, part, the, you know, the upbringing that we're, we come from, they say the first thing you do is you read the passage, and you read it over and over and over again before you get into commentaries, before you read, uh, listen to podcasts, or you hear what other people say about it. First, you just search the scriptures and you pray about it, and you meditate on it, and you ask, God, what is this saying to me? And what is this saying for our church? What are you trying to say to our community through this scripture? Because even though there is like a direct meaning, there might be something kind of unique that God has for us in this. So that's the question. What are you saying to me? So, um, and, and what does it say? So in this instance, like the first thing that I read, I read this passage, I read about about water, I read about blood, the first thing I think of is Jesus' is baptism and Jesus' death. That, that's, what I, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, which when I began to actually study it, I found out that's actually a very common theme. That's actually what most people think that it is. In fact, that it's very likely that is what John is referring to. He's referring to the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus, okay? So that's kind of, we'll get there a little bit later. But the second thing that I thought of was I I started to think about these images. And I'm thinking, okay, how does this apply to us? What can we do with this? Because there's only so much you can do with baptism and death. I mean, there's really a lot you could do with it. But I said, God, what do you have in this passage you know, for us? So I get these images, and I start seeing all these other images throughout the Bible about water. And they might not all relate to Jesus. I mean, really everything relates to Jesus. All the stuff you read about blood, you can say it, it's not directly about Jesus, but it is really about him. But right, I started looking at these images, and I start to realize, okay, there's a lot here. And we're going to end up, we're going to go to the baptism uh, eventually. We'll get there. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just go through a couple of these first images that I saw and some things that came to my mind. So what, what this scripture says, just so you have a clear understanding of what it means, is it says there are three things that bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God. And what that's saying is that there are three things that have happened 
that show us very clearly Jesus is God. He's actually God. The water testifies, the water happened, the blood, and the spirit. So the first thing that John mentions is water. Now, um, some of you guys remember a, a while ago, we had this leak in our basement, and we actually didn't get it fixed until this week. Like, it's been like months since it happened. And what happened was uh, we had a water b- line burst, and we tried to fix this water line, and in trying to fix the water line, we somehow cracked the main lead line that went into our, uh, before our meter, like the one from the city, the city line. Um, so we, we couldn't just turn the water off because it was on the other side of the meter. So I had to call the city to come and turn off the water. Then I had to call a plumber to come and fix the plumbing. So I did that this week, finally. Like we kind of bandaged it, bandaged, band-aided it, whatever it is, uh, for, for, for at first uh, just to hold it over. And that got us six months. Finally, we fixed it. I, so what I had to do is I had to call the city. The plumber has a very specific time he wants to be there. The city doesn't do specific times, though. The city says, well, I'll give you a 24 to a 48-hour window in which we, will turn, which we will show up to turn off the water. And you have to be there the entire time, by the way, because if we show up and you're not there, we're leaving. I'm like, okay, cool. So we're stuck at home. So I call early in the morning Monday because early in the morning Tuesday is my appointment. I'm thinking they'll probably come like maybe within 24 hours. They come in one hour. They're at my house at 10 in the morning on Monday. Plumber's not coming until Tuesday, so water gets turned off. We have no water. Plumber comes Tuesday morning, fixes it in like 10 minutes. And then I call the city back, come back. It it doesn't take them an hour the second time. It takes them till almost the end of the day before they finally get there. So here we are going this entire day without a plumber or, or without water. And of course, like I said, you have to be there the whole time. You can't leave or else they'll never turn your water back on. And Dawn and I's nieces, two of our nieces, were actually staying with us that week, this week as well. So there were eight people with no running water for two days. The Williams are like, yeah, I can completely relate. You guys, don't, you don't even need to talk to me about that, right? Which, in theory, it doesn't seem very bad, right? A couple days without water, eight people in a house. You know, people, some people overseas, they have to go without running water their whole lives. I, I, so I, I don't want, I want to I be careful how I, but it was miserable for me, man. I was really, really grouchy. Without it, you, you get very disgusting. Your house gets very disgusting when you don't have running water in it and you have eight people living in it and it's really, really hot out. You, you can't wipe down tables. You can't do dishes. You can't mop the floors. You can't take showers. You can't flush toilets. You guys get the idea. After not even a day, I just, I felt awful. I felt so disgusting. I felt really, really gross. See, when you don't have water in your house, you feel that lack, don't you? You realize, well, I am, there's something missing from my life right now, and it is miserable. I am lacking it. There is a void. Which leads me to a story in the Gospel of John about a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman, she went to draw water from a well. It's called Jacob's Well, but nobody really keeps track of what the wells are called. You know, it's a really great name for a well. If you ever want to do a well, there it is. So, and Jesus had just finished a long journey, and he finds his way to this well. And it's very significant what it says about Jesus. It says, it says that he, he came to this well, and he was very, very tired. In fact, the Greek word is kapiao, and it, it literally means exhausted. So Jesus gets to this well and he's exhausted. He's, he's so tired. And that's actually hugely significant to what John is, the picture that John is painting here and what John is trying to make in the point in his epistle back in, in 1 John 5. 
which we're going to get to. So Jesus, he's in the middle of this earthly ministry. He's working really, really hard. He's fully God, yet he's fully man, and he's fully exhausted. He's tired. He's out of breath. He needs a break. Has anybody ever been there? I need a break. I'm tired. I don't have much left to give. Well, that was Jesus. He didn't have much left to give when he gets to this well. So he gets to the well, and he's actually tired, so he thinks, I'll ask this woman for some water. So he asks the woman if she would draw him some water. Now, she's a Samaritan, and he, of course, is a Jew. And so she asks him, she says, no, why would you ask me for water? You're Jewish, and Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But how many of you know that this particular Jew, he does not follow the cultural rules that maybe other people feel bound to, like who we can talk to and who we cannot talk to? He doesn't follow rules that tell us who you can and who you cannot be in community with. He's not bound by the prejudices or the discriminatory nature of our world. He knows, you know what, I actually have something that I can offer this woman. I'm going to eventually be able to help her, so I'm going to engage in a conversation with her so that I can get there. Now, she asks him that. She says, why are you even asking me? And he doesn't answer that question. Basically, what he actually says is, he says, you're asking the wrong question. Asking the wrong question. He tells her, if you had known who it was that had asked you to draw him some water, then you would have asked him to give you, you would have asked me to give you living water. And Jesus, he goes on to explain to the Samaritan that everybody who drinks from Jacob's well, as great as that well is, is going to one day come back thirsting for more. You're going to come back, you're going to be thirsty. Everyone who tries to fill those empty places of their lives with the things of this world, they're going to eventually return to them because they will have not been filled by them. So they'll return trying again to get full and trying again to get full. But every single time, it's just going to leave them empty. Just You're going to come back once again thirsty. You're going to keep coming back. But Jesus says, you know what? I offer you something different than that. He says, I'm offering living water that will... What he says is he says that what will happen is it will bubble up inside of you. There'll be a spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. That's the way that Jesus puts it. Water inside of you will well up and it will be eternal life. There will be this water inside of you that's just filling and filling and it's constantly life to you and it's constantly guiding you and it's filling you up everything you need all the time, right? Now, we've talked about eternal life in this series a lot because John goes back to it a lot. And, and we, we talk about this misconception because everybody sees eternal life as eternal life as I'm going to heaven someday. And I believe you're going to heaven someday if you have Jesus in your life, but eternal life is not just someday. It is now until someday. It, you have it right now. If you only look ahead, you're going to miss your whole purpose of being here. If you only look ahead, you're going to miss the woman at the well. If you only look ahead, you're going to miss the person on the side of the street. You may even miss your own family if you're always just looking toward what is coming. In John, uh, 1 uh, John 5.11, we, we read earlier, John says this. He says, God gave us eternal life. I emphasize that for you. That's pretty cut and dry. You have this thing right now. You have it now. It doesn't say God will someday give us eternal life, like when we die. It says, no, he's given it to you now. We have it now. Just like he says in chapter 3, you're God's children now. This is not someday. This is now. And so this woman, she hears this. And she hears about this amazing, cleansing, life-changing water that will never leave her empty or thirsty or any of the things that she's felt all of her life. 
as she's always tried to fill these voids with things that every time she fills it, it just falls right through because it's, it's just like an endless hole. And she asks for it. She says, Jesus, give me that. What, what you have, I want. And you know what Jesus does? This is actually a huge plot twist. Because we would think that Jesus would just give her the water. But nowhere in the passage does it say that he gives her the water. Now, I definitely believe that she left with living water. But it wasn't like Jesus just like hands her a cup and says, here, drink this water and you will never thirst again. That's not what happened. He had to do something very, very different on her heart. And I believe he has to do the same thing on a lot of our hearts if we're going to understand what it means to live eternal life out in our world today. Jesus shows her. Says, okay, you, you, you want to never thirst again? What he does, he shows her. That in the same way that she's come to this well to get a drink, she is trying to fill her life. She is trying to satisfy her life with things that are just going to leave her coming back for more. So this is what he does. He says, okay, you want living water? Do me a favor. Could you go and get your husband and bring him back with you? And, of course, she replies, well, I I can't do that because I don't have a husband. I don't have one. So this is what Jesus says. He says, "You're, you're right in answering that you do not have a husband. In fact, You've had five husbands, and none of them worked out. And now the, the man you're living with now, you, you, you're, not even, you're not even married to, right? You don't have a husband, right? Every time one marriage failed, you tried to fill what you thought you'd lost in the first marriage by a second marriage. And when that didn't fill you, you tried a third marriage, and a fourth, and a fifth. And after the fifth didn't fill you, now you're just living with this person. He's not even your husband. In other words, you've given up on the institution of marriage, You've given it up. Now you're trying it your own way. And this conversation just goes on and on, right? And so basically she says, Jesus, I think you're a prophet. You seem to be a prophet. I perceive that you're a prophet. He said, actually, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. He just gives it to her. He's like, actually, I'm the Messiah. I'm he that you that prophesy about. I'm not the prophet. I'm the one they prophesy about. You know, that's basically what he tells her. He's like, I'm the Messiah. He says, I'm God. God needs to be worshipped in spirit and truth. All right, but then watch this, right? This is, this is fascinating. The disciples start to come. And the, the woman sees them coming. And so what she does is, is she, she slips out. But what it says is the woman, she leaves her jar of water there. She doesn't take the water with her. She goes into town and she starts recruiting people in the town by saying, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And this line right here, it's everything. And let me explain. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, because the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is what it says. In other words, blessed are you, woman at the well, when you realize that everything that you've done has only led you to a place that's more broken. Blessed are you, woman at the well, when you realize that you can't create your own path, that every time you try to create your own path to find your way to God, you still find yourself vacant and void and not finding God because he's not on that path. A few sentences later, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And get this, we, we did a study on this a few, a few years ago at Equip. And the word thirst, is, in Strong's Concordance, it talks about how this word thirst is most often in the Bible used figuratively. And this is what it means. It's, it's referring to those who painfully feel their want of and eagerly long for 
the things by which the soul is refreshed, supported, and strengthened. But what's so fascinating is this. Jesus says you're blessed when you have the void. Okay? Because if you have the void, that means that he can fill the void with the right thing. When we've tried our whole lives to fill it with our own things. So by Jesus showing the woman that he knew all that she ever did, he was not holding this over her. He was not holding it against her. He was showing her that she did the wrong thing because she believed the wrong thing. She thought that she could uh, make herself happy. She thought that a relationship could make her happy. She thought that she could fix something that human beings in our own ability were not able to fix. So he got her to see this void one that she, when, and when she truly recognized this void, then, she was, then he was ready to actually fill it. And I believe that this is a moment we all need to have in our lives. I believe we all need to have this moment in our lives, a moment at the well type of moment. A moment when we realize that all of the things that we think give us value really aren't worth anything at all. If you think that your worth is wrapped up in, you know, the house that you have or the car that you drive or, or, the, or the way that you're succeeding in your business and the way that things seem to be lining up for you, it's going to leave you empty. If your hope is in the things that you accomplish and what you can make of yourself, it may build you up for a moment, but it will eventually let you down. If your hope is in your marriage, it's going to leave you thirsty. Now, marriage is a good thing. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but it wasn't, meant to create, it wasn't created to fill you. It's not meant to fill you. It's meant to be a reflection of the gospel. There's only one thing that will give you what you're ultimately seeking, and that is the living water of Jesus Christ. And when and only when you come to the end of yourself like that, like she did, and when you see, as she did, this is the one thing in the entire world that matters... That is when you'll be able to actually step into what God truly has for you and for your life. And make that impact that can only be made on a life that God's hand is on. I want God's hand on my life. See, guys, this woman, she left the water there. But yet she left satisfied. She didn't need the water. She didn't need the water from the well because she had something else. But the result is what matters most. She left that place proclaiming Jesus and it drew the whole town to Jesus so they could see for themselves and when they saw for themselves, they all gave their lives to Jesus. They all believed this is the savior of the world. That's the result of living water. Now, you might say to me, okay, that's great, but First John, water is talking not about living water, it's talking about the baptism of Jesus, right? You're absolutely right. But what is the purpose of baptism? What's the purpose? Why do we do it? Why do we baptize people? Baptism is a testimony. It is a public display of your love and your devotion to Jesus and your commitment to his mission. You are publicly confessing to everybody else that Jesus is Lord of your life and that you may be going down into the water one way, but you are going back, you're going to come up another way, and you will never turn back. It is a making all things new type of moment in your life. It is a come to the well type of moment of your life. Even in the account that, uh, 
the Mark gives and Matthew gives it. Mark, Mark was the first gospel that was written. It was the, it's the oldest gospel we have, so the, kind of the original account of Jesus' baptism. If you, if you notice the language of this account, it's actually, it will fascinate you if you study it. It's, so you have, you have Jesus, John baptizes Jesus, he's in water, then Jesus is just standing there in the water, and then heaven opens up, and then the, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and he hovers over Jesus in the water in the bodily form like a dove. And then, and then God in an audible voice starts speaking life into Jesus by saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Actually, if you really think about it, the, the language that's used to describe the, that surrounds Jesus' baptism is very similar to the description you get in Genesis 1 when God's creating the heavens and the earth. And when God is making all things and the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water, over the face of the deep. It's, it's the same image you get of when God is creating everything, forming new life. Because that's what baptism is all about. Baptism is all about new life. It's about stepping into something new. It is a proclamation that Jesus is Lord, and now you are on mission for him. Just like the woman who left the well and went on a mission for Jesus, and she brought the entire town back. The essence of baptism is newness and its mission. You dedicate yourself to a new way. See, we focus on the water, and, and the water is important. It is powerful, it matters. But the water is only powerful because of what the water represents and because of the message that it communicates to the world. When Jesus was baptized in water, it was an empowerment for his mission that he had always had. The Spirit came down on him and it's reminded him Jesus, you're not alone in this. I'm here to empower you, you're not alone on the mission. But even before he was baptized, even without being baptized in that moment, right, even before the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman, we don't get a recording of her being baptized, but even without being baptized, she left that place so changed, she left that place so full, she left the water, guys, but she joined the movement. And here's the thing that I've struggled with. I've known a whole lot of people who have been dunked in the water, but they never truly joined the movement. And listen, if you're here today and you've never been baptized, we would love to baptize you. We, we want to do more of that. We want to empower people and let us do that. But you've got to understand what you are being baptized into. You are being baptized into a mission. Traditions, symbols, sacraments, they're only worth as much as you actually mean them in your heart. They're only worth as much as you're actually willing to let your life be a manifestation of them. You know, you get the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they'll say all the right things, but, the, but their, their lives don't actually reflect it. This, and then this woman, she's not even a Jew, she's not even been baptized, and yet she's on this mission that changes an entire city. We get so caught up on these things. Man, that's a lot of fruit for one girl. And we, just like the Samaritan woman, no matter where we are today or what we did yesterday, we can drink from the water of life and then never, ever thirst again in Christ. So, so John says that. He says, he says that the first it testifies you have the blood or the, the water, and then he also says you have the blood. Now, again, most scholars agree blood is referring to Jesus' death when his blood was poured out for us. It's pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to get too into that right now. But it is important to understand that in the same way that water is something that we rely on for life. Like we get, it's, we get really miserable, we don't have it. Eventually you'll die if you don't have it. 
Blood, according to the Bible, is the essence of life. It's this, what it's described as. It's what keeps us alive. I'll show you in a minute a verse in Leviticus that says just that. Uh, but Don and I, we have a, a friend in, in um, Texas, in Dallas, Texas, a friend uh, named Matt. He's a youth pastor at one of the biggest churches in the nation. It's a church called Gateway Church. It's a huge church, one of the biggest that there is. And their pastor, Pastor Robert Morris, a few months ago, he almost died. Like he got really, really, like they said he was like seconds away from dying or just a few minutes or whatever. It was like he ended up having to get airlifted to a hospital. And they said like if, if you would have been five minutes later, you would be gone. And what they ended up saying was he got airlifted to this hospital and they started giving him all these blood transfusions. They just had to keep giving him more and more blood. And they said that it was the blood donors that saved his life. It kept him alive. I, I was reading about this just yesterday. Uh, that their church, after this happened, after all these people, uh, after all this blood was given to their pastor and it saved him, their church responded to that because that's what churches should do. They should respond to things when God does something amazing for you, like prove his faithfulness by sparing the life of your pastor through other people's blood, right? You should respond. And so they responded by having a blood drive of their own. And the donation center that they partnered with, it was, uh, it's called Carter Blood Care. This is what they ended up saying in an article about, about this blood drive. We have been able to help some of the other community centers. Like we're overflowing. We had to give to other community centers and usually we're at the point of asking others for their blood. This is how the church should react to every opportunity that it ever has to react, guys. They, they said that from this one church's response alone, over 4,600 lives will potentially be saved. It was the biggest blood drive that this organization, the blood drive organization, had ever done with the biggest response it had ever had, and it's all from one church. That is the result of a church that has been baptized into the mission of Jesus Christ. But it comes to show you, blood matters. It does. Blood is a matter of life and a matter of death. Look at this verse. If you look in Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verse 11, this is what it says. Moses says this. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so Moses, he writes this. He says that because of our sins, in order for us to receive atonement, in order to receive forgiveness of sins, blood has to be spilled. The sacred flow of life, it must be itself poured out because the wages of sin is death, right? And there is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what they would do for the sin offering was they would, take a, they would select a perfect spotless lamb. A perfect lamb, and then they would, uh, and that lamb would be the payment for the sins of the people. His blood would be the payment. So when the Bible talks about Jesus once and for all, being that atonement, being that sacrifice, when it talks about Jesus' blood actually being poured out, it's not just talking about a guy who was murdered. This is about God himself becoming a man who relied on blood, just like we blood, re, rely on it as the very essence of our humanity, just like Robert Morris re relied on it and relied on it so that he could live, just like everybody else has, who's ever lived relies on blood. And then Jesus had that taken from him. So the Spirit testifies, 
the Holy Spirit, the one who uh, comes down, he points to Jesus. The Bible says he always testifies to Jesus. Everything is just pointing people to Jesus. The water testifies, the, the baptism, the cleansing, the preparing and empowering you for mission, empowering Jesus for mission. And the blood testifies, the essence of life, spirit, water, and blood. Now, if we go back to the Gospel of John chapter 1, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Well, I think it's all really interesting, but... Three chapters uh, before the story of the woman at the well, you get the story uh, in John 1. It starts at 29. And so basically, John the Baptist is there, and he's baptizing people. Uh, He's baptizing people in the Jordan at Bethany. And uh, Jesus approaches him. And when Jesus approaches him, this is what John says. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist sees Jesus, and right out of the way, he prophesies. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who will be sacrificed. This is the one whose blood will be shed because the wages of sin is death. This is the one who will take your place. This is the one who will take my place. This is the one who's going to do it. He's here now. But do you know what happens next? We talked about it a few minutes ago. The Bible says John himself bears witness that when he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down and ascends on him on a, uh, in a bodily form like a dove. So Jesus is baptized in the water. Spirit comes. So in this one setting, in these just one section of verses, you get death, prophetic death, l- water, and you get spirit. There really could be no doubt that though there's a lot loaded kind of behind the significance of these things, water and blood, ultimately it's referring to this event. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' eventual death, what John prophesied about that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the, of the world. But the question is why? Not why did all this happen, but why did John write about it? Why do we, why do we get this, this strange language in this letter to a church? Why does he do this? What's he trying to say to a church that has had all these different voices, trying to tell them all of these different false teachings about Jesus? The heresy in the day, the, what, what, what people believed the heresy was that was going around in John's day, was a form of Gnosticism. And what it taught was this. It taught that Jesus Christ was just a man. We had the appearance of, of God, but he's not really God because God can't die. And this is kind of the way that they explained it. They said he was born just like any other man, no virgin birth, no none of that. He's just born of a man, like a man. And they said, but at his baptism... When the Spirit stepped down on him, at that moment, he, he, no, he started being God just at that moment when the Spirit rested on him. The Spirit came down on him. That's what gave him his deity. And then before he died, there's a moment when he submits his Spirit to God, which he does do, as in, in, as in he's given up his deity at that moment before dying because in their view, a God cannot die. So they say he has to submit his Spirit before he can die. So they were using these stories to try to justify this. And it was confusing people to say, well, Jesus came at his baptism. He's God during this, during this time of his life. And then he's not God anymore before he dies because God can't die. So let me show you what John does. And then I'm going to show you why it matters uh, for us. And then we're going to close. We need to look at the very first verse again that we read. It's, chapter, it's 1 John 5, verse 6. This is what it says. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, 
one of the words that you probably would not expect to be the game changer in this entire passage is the word by. But it is. See, we read the word by because that's the way that it's translated. But the word by in the Greek in the first part of the sentence is a different word than the second two times, than the two times it's used in the second sentence. Totally different words. Nothing, not even close. The second and third by is the word en, which means by or it means in. It could definitely mean that. It's like, okay, Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus came uh, in the water. They're basically saying the same thing. But the first word that we get for by is the word dia, which actually could much, much, much more accurately be translated as through. So this first line should read this way. This is he who came through water and blood. And the way that this Greek is written is this is what it's saying. It's saying that it's like that of a constant flow. Like Jesus is God. And he was God from the very beginning. And even through his baptism, he still remained God. So even though Jesus was God, he got baptized, but he didn't start being God. He was God all the way through. Then he was God all the way through his life. And then even through his death, he was still God. He just continued to be God the entire time. Through his death, he was still God. And even though that all sounds like a bunch of sort of confusing information, stuff that you might not think matters, let me show you why it does matter today. Because a lot of us, and I'm included in this, even though we may not call ourselves Gnostics, we have a view of God that is similar to this. Even when we think about God, like, in the Bible, we, we really do view him this way, if you really think about it. A lot of us view Jesus as somebody who, because he lived perfectly, he just cannot possibly relate to us. Like, think about this. Think about, if you think about Jesus as a child, right? And what do we all think of Jesus as a child? We have this image of Jesus, like, having this back of his mind, I'm a God, I'm better than these people, I'm pretending to be human just so that uh, they don't, they're not on to me, Right? We don't think that he goes through the things that we went through, but he was fully man. Like, we think he's just thinking, oh, I'm just pretending to be a mere human, just like they're all mere humans. Like, like we think he didn't go through the teenage angst years. Like, we think that he didn't go through puberty. We, we think that emotion was something that he didn't actually have to deal with, but he was just a kid. He was just a boy. At the same time, he's always been God. But he's a kid, he's a human, he's a person. He felt things, just like in Mark 11 when he feels anger. And he goes to the temple and he's angry about what he sees in the temple. Just like here in John 4 at the well when he's tired. He feels it. He knows what it's like to feel the weight of a long day. And at his baptism, he was empowered by the Spirit which means he's fully God, he's fully man, and he's fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that is with you and I today that we can trust and rely on today. But the Spirit does not, did not make Jesus God any more than the Spirit does not make you God or me God when he's on us. But he does make us more powerful, a lot more powerful. You know, Jesus, he, he lived his whole life fully God, Yet going through all the motions and going through all of the emotions. 
in all of the life struggles that you face every day and that I face every single day. And that's what makes the gospel so powerful is Jesus can actually relate to your pain. He can actually relate to the things that you go through every single day. Guys, these pinnacle moments, they're important, but John's not giving them to us to limit Jesus and bind him into this couple year period. He's saying, no, Jesus was not limited to that timeline. Jesus was God all the way through the entire thing. And he's God today. And if he had given up his deity before he died, he would not be God today. He'd be dead today. But Jesus is alive. And that matters. Because it means that today, you and I, we can seek Jesus. And when we seek him, we'll find him. Jesus, just like you, he could be broken. Just like you may be broken right now. And he'll sit with you, and he'll comfort you, and he'll be there for you and he'll love you and he'll give you living water filling the voids in a way that only he can because everything in the world that we ever seek to fill us it's always going to keep leaving us empty so Jesus when, when he's with this woman at the, at the well and he's offering her water by which she'll never thirst again he's God the whole time he's able to perceive what's going on in the depths of her heart yet at the same time he's man he's flesh and blood he's emotion he feels emotions. He's moved to compassion by the fact that he lives in the middle of a world that is so broken that people go through five marriages before finally giving up on marriage. Because two broken people, they can't figure out how they fit together, how to work together, what, what, that, what marriage is supposed to be. But none of those husbands ever filled her and that was the whole problem. She wasn't full. But it wasn't their job to fill her. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus had to interact with people and build friendships and relationships with people and walk people through things that he never gave into, but he definitely clearly understood as Hebrews makes this so clear. Jesus was tempted and he was tried just as you and I were, but he overcame every single temptation and he lived without sin. But he was not unbreakable. If he was not, if he was unbreakable, he would not have been so broken. He would not have been beat down, mocked, torn apart. He was, guys, Jesus was betrayed he was abandoned, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was put to a cross so that we could, he, could, he could die so that we can live. And this is how that passage ends. The passage ends by saying, whoever has the Son has life. We can live. But whoever does not have the Son does not have life. We could summarize it this way. We'll summarize it two ways. Jesus is everything. He's everything. When the world feels like it's totally falling apart and like nothing seems to make sense, look to Jesus. Just look to him. He'll find you. You'll find him if you look to him. He'll be right there. When you feel alone, he's there. He's always been there. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he loves you today. And he's always loved you. You know, we, we spent this entire letter learning about who Jesus is, who God is, and what he's like. You know, God is light. Chapter one says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Like, the, the darkness cannot, the darkness, we're, we're powerless against darkness unless we have light, but if we have light, then light has to go. 
Here we hear God is light. In chapter two, you get this line at the very beginning. You get Jesus is our advocate. It's the word parakletos. It means, literally, it means that he is the one who stands by our side. So he like walks through it with us. And, and it, mean, it also means one who pleads our cause before a judge. So he's, def- he's the one who's pleading it for us. He's right there. He has the ear of the judge. It's going to be okay. Chapter three, he says, God is our father. We are God's children right now. Right now. Chapter four, we get God is love. God is love. And how, if we can grasp this concept that he's love, and this love and the transformational power of what that could do if it manifested in our lives, the way that we could change the world, God is love. But then today's message, in in kind of a bit of an obscure kind of way, what it really tells us is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. There's no doubt about it. This is Jesus, and this is God. And you can spend your entire life trying to fill voids with a bunch of things that you may think that make you feel good for a moment, but in the end, they're just going to leave you just as thirsty as you were before you started, just as empty, just as lost. Or you can fill it with Jesus, true living water, and you can have life. We were meant to have life. We're meant to have life.